You're listening to the Wheeler Centre podcast. Well, what I tell young writers, both in my classroom and beyond, is that you are far more than the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And if you never write about that, you are no less a writer than anyone else. and welcome. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I will be your host for this evening's conversation with none other than Roxanne Gay. <laughs> I would like to acknowledge that this event is taking place on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I want to further acknowledge that First Nations people have been coming together and sharing ideas on this land for tens of thousands of years. So tonight we join a long and important tradition of oral storytelling. This event is presented by the Wheeler Centre, Australia's first dedicated centre for books, writing and ideas and Melbourne's home for smart, passionate and entertaining public talks. And it is so nice to do those talks in person, finally, again. This event is also supported by Future Women, where I work as the Chief Creative Officer and lead a team of Roxanne Gay superfans, many of whom are here tonight. <laughs> this event is part of, broadly speaking, a series of events offering deep dives into feminism and gender. Roxanne. Jamila. Let's have a chat. Let us. Let us. Roxanne. Yes. Why are people so mean on the internet? <sighs> Wow, there's, I mean, there are so many answers to that question. I think a lot of people feel very impotent in their day-to-day -day lives, mm. and they have very little recourse for their grievances. And so you can go online and engage with strangers, essentially, and you have the anonymity of screen. And so I think that allows people to give in to their baser impulses. Yeah. You were one of the first people I followed when I joined Twitter. And I noticed that you are more quiet now than you once were. Was that deliberate? Yes, it was. You just hit a wall sometimes and mm. the level of abuse and vitriol and cruelty, it has become unsustainable. Like, why am I inviting this kind of negativity into my life? And I got married and that yeah. deserves a woo. Woohoo! <laughs> and my wife is online, but she's not capital O online. And so I found myself trying to explain whatever nonsense had happened online, and she would just look at me like I was speaking a different language, like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I started to realize, by, because of her counsel, like, why am I giving these people so much energy? Mm. Now, I enjoy clapping back at trolls as much as anyone, and I'm never giving that up. <laughs> but I do find that my energy is better spent elsewhere, especially like in terms of exposing myself to cruelty. It's not necessary. Like I can hate myself all by myself. I don't need any outside input. I think we've got a habit, and we are addicted to it here in Australia, perhaps more than other places in the world, of building women up, mm. up and up and up and up and up until they're so cool, so smart and so everywhere that we've got nothing else left to do except bring them down for sport. Mm -hmm. Do you worry that'll happen to you? I think it already does and I predicted it and I wrote about it in Bad Feminist when I said don't put me on a pedestal and yet people seem to do so anyway. <sighs> you know... There seems to be a real pleasure that people take in building people up only to be able to take them down. And so, yes, I worry about it quite a lot, but I also, on my better days, just think, okay, go ahead. Like, I can go work at Starbucks. I have no problem. Like, that is a fine job, and I will do it if I need to. And so when you give yourself that freedom to 
decouple what you do from who you are, it makes it a lot easier to sort of roll with the very many career-related punches that you're going to encounter. Mm. On my lesser days, I'm just like, I'm going to lose everything. I don't know <laughs> what I'm going to do. But I also always constantly remind people that I'm human, and sometimes I'm going to have lousy opinions. Not often, though. <laughs> Truly, I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm right. <laughs> but, you know, I do try to own it when I have an opinion that is not as well-informed as it could be. Yeah. I think um, public shaming of women is its not new. It's not something that started happening with the internet. We were doing it long before. Um, I was listening to an incredible... I was reading an incredible conversation between you and Monica Lewinsky in mm, preparation yeah, for today. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, do you think it's easier for men to bounce back from that kind of public shaming than women, or can anyone recover? I think it's easier for wealthy people to bounce back <laughs> from that kind of public shaming. Mm. And yes, also men. I think the closer you are to cisgender, heterosexual, white, and male, um, the closer you are to really encountering no consequences at all when you behave badly. Women do receive quite a lot of public shaming and Monica Lewinsky is actually a really good example. You know, Bill Clinton was president like a hundred years ago and people still, I have seen it to this day, will make insults about what happened when she was 19 when she's talking about the weather. And whatever mistakes she may have made, like, let it go. It's over. And also, who wouldn't? <laughs> I mean... Oh, I agree. I agree with you. At the time, you know, like, if I was 19 and President Obama was like... <laughs> 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 come into my office, my secret office, I'd be like, be right there. <laughs> so, you know, I do think that the grudges that we hold against women last far longer, and men, they bounce back all the time. I mean, Joe Rogan is trucking along. Um, the comedian that likes to whip his dick out. Uh, Louis C.K., um, Louis C.K., he's back on tour. You know, Bill Cosby is thriving out of prison. So, yes, that's the short answer. <laughs> I think um, I get the sense that apologizing is becoming an art form mm. now. Um, you know, you are a famous person, particularly a famous white bloke who says the wrong thing or who messes up or has a slip or is just downright rude or abusive to someone mm -hmm. and you issue the right cleverly worded statement and that's okay mm -hmm. and it sort of abrogates you of responsibility at the same time okay like first of all let's just kudos for abrogate oh thanks girl i love a sexy vocabulary <laughs> uh for the woman with memory loss that's the greatest compliment of my life uh. <laughs> um why do you think we're so scared to own our own mistakes? To own what? Own our own mistakes. Because something I've noticed about you, you don't really make mistakes, but... Thank you. Now I do, all the time. But you have a willingness to say, I think I've messed up. I do have a willingness to say, I think I messed up. And it doesn't come easily, but I see what happens when people don't apologize. And I see the frustration that it engenders and the pain and I don't want to be that person. Mm -hmm. I really don't. And the reality is that sometimes I do make mistakes and cause harm. And the best way to start to undo that harm, however small the harms can be, what may seem small to me may not be small to someone else. And so I try to recognize what I did and to apologize for what I did and the effect it had rather than to apologize for how someone is feeling without taking any accountability. Mm. 
And it's, you know, the reason apologies in general are so bad is because it requires a level of humility and self-reflection that is very hard to come by. You know, I struggle with it, but I would rather engage in that struggle and do the right thing because it's the right thing than to not do the right thing and make some sort of half-assed apology or do nothing at all. We see what that gets you, which is nothing good. And, you know, I also think that beyond the apology, there has to be some kind of reparation. And that's also, that's the one thing I do that I'm very proud of is that whatever apology you make is only as good as what you do after the apology. And that's where I like to invest as much of my energy as possible. You get called brave a lot. Mm. Um, how do you feel about that? You know, I think that there are a lot of catchwords that people love to apply to anyone who does something they can't imagine themselves doing. And so I understand why people call me brave, but I assure you, I am not brave. Um, I'm terrified all the time for one reason or another, but I somehow have the ability to do things anyway, to put my work into the world anyway. And I don't think that's bravery. I think that's just masochism. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I would argue that is bravery, being scared and deciding to do it anyway. Like, if you're not scared, then you're just a weird narcissist person who's not right. scared of stuff. You know... I, I do see the, that argument. I just, when I hear the word brave, I think of actual brave people. And I never want to seem like I'm trying to claim that kind of space because it feels like, no, that's not where I belong. I belong somewhere over here with the other chicken chips. And <laughs> so, yeah, I struggle with that word. Yeah, I, I, so I got very sick a few years ago and the word brave started coming out mm. all the time. And I found that maybe people were trying to say something else, mm -hmm. but it was more of a comment on how shit my life had become. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was almost a projection of, oh, things aren't good for you. Mm -hmm. Brave. I'll give you brave. Yeah. When really it's more like, I'll give you pity. Absolutely. And I think that might be one of the reasons I find the word brave uncomfortable. Again, yeah. it's like, I can't imagine having to live in your body. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the time, that's what people are really saying to me. And it's frustrating because it's like, do you think I don't understand what you're saying? Because I do. I'm smart. And, you know, it's also painful, like that my existence is so horrifying to you that you think that for me to wake up and have my yogurt and get going with my day requires bravery. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> when you wrote Hunger, you write in the opening passages just how hard it was for you to write that book. Yes. And if it was that hard for you to write that book, and I fully believe you, there's some bravery in that. But how do you feel when people refer to it as brave? You know, I think, guys, no, this isn't bravery. I just did it. But I do, again, recognize why people feel that way. You know, with Hunger, it was so terrifying to imagine writing that book and making myself vulnerable in the ways that would be required in order for the book to be what I wanted it to be, which was to write about fatness from within the experience of fatness without weight loss at the end of the journey as oh, I've solved it, I figured it out, I'll, everything's fine now. So what is it just like to live in a fat body where you're not on some sort of magical weight loss quest? Because most books about bodies and weight are in one way or another about weight loss. And, you know, you don't read a lot about what it's like to go to a place and have to deal with chairs that are inadequate or people who stare or whatever. And so I just thought, I'm going to write about my life. And 
it was hard, but I am very proud of the book that came out of that. Mm. It's been five years, I think, mm, since it has. you released that book. Do you think the treatment of fatness by the medical establishment has changed at all in that time, even a little bit? Yes, it has, but not enough. Hunger is now taught in a lot of medical schools, at least in the U.S., and that is one of the most unexpected side effects of my career. That's an incredible achievement. It is. It's the one thing I'm very proud of. You are, you are raising a generation of better doctors. I'm trying. That's not bad. And the bar is so low. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> talk to fat people like they're human. But doctors have reached out to me. I get at least a letter a week from a doctor who has read Hunger and says that my book has changed their entire practice and their entire way of relating to patients. And to know that I am helping other fat people out there get health care that they deserve is incredibly meaningful, and it makes all of the frustrations of writing the book absolutely worthwhile. But there's a long way to go. You know, doctors are terrified of fatness. Mm. And in many ways, I think it's because they know that without health care, eventually, you're going to need to see a doctor. And they see what happens, and they attribute it strictly to fatness without realizing that because you're so shitty to fat people, they haven't gone to the doctor for 30 years. So by the time you go to the doctor 30 years later, you're going to have some shit going on. And... I, they're not willing to sort of look at that and unpack that. And so they just say fatness is terrible, lose weight. But they say that, like, I remember going in for a sore throat. And on the first thing, they had written three things on my chart. And number one was obesity. And I was just like, I just need some penicillin, man. Like, could you hook me up and, like, not worry? Because my throat isn't too fat. And so I just keep hoping that things will get better because so many fat people... I remember the first week that Hunger came out, which was quite a week. <laughs> um, some of you know. Um, the first week it came out, um, this, woman, this guy came up to me in Philadelphia. And he... I was like, wow, a man at one of my events. And... <laughs> He told me that his wife had died that yesterday, the day before, and she was fat, and she had never gone to the doctor. And he thanked me for writing Hunger because he hopes that it will save someone else's wife. And I've never forgotten that, and I've never forgotten that man because he was shattered, and he still came to my event to honor his wife's memory. And like nobody should have to live like that in fear of doctors. I mean, even now, I, I don't go to the doctor unless someone in my household forces me to. <laughs> I'm not going to name names, Deborah. <laughs> I, um, I spoke to a lot of friends, mostly girlfriends, before this event who are big fans of yours about the things they would most like asked. And... Many of my fat girlfriends talked about concern trolling. Mm -hmm. And when fat phobia is dressed up to look like I'm worried about you, mm -hmm. especially by people who love them and who they love. Yes. And the question was, what the hell do you do with that? <sighs> That's something I deal with all the time. Oh, all the time. People mean well. They really do. And people, like we've all been raised in the same really toxic culture that tells us that foods are good or bad and that the choices we make are good or bad. And a lot of people, myself included, struggle to decouple value judgments from the ways we treat our bodies, the way we feed our bodies and so on. And so you are inevitably gonna get concern trolling and people frame it as, I only do this because I care 
without realizing that every time they do it, they just break you a little bit more. And so increasingly, I do try to push back because it's not that I don't appreciate the care, but I, I know these things. Like I live in the world, I read, I have a pretty good doctor for the first time in my life. And so the trolling isn't necessary at all. Like I don't need it. You know, the other day, my mother, bless her heart, was like, I'm so glad you're traveling so much again because you lose a lot of weight on the road. And I was just like, oh, I love you so much. <laughs> so I'm not going to hang up. <laughs> but, you know, every time those things come, I, you know, I push back now. And so I told her, that's not my goal right now. Like, don't worry about it. And not every day can I push back in the ways that I really want to. But no matter what, I always try to remind myself afterwards that that's more about them and their own issues with food and bodies and fatness than it is about me. I'm just the easy canvas that they can project their own anxieties onto. And so it's not a great consolation, but it does help. Mm. There's a proven link between weight gain in childhood and trauma. Mm -hmm. and it's something you've written about. Why do you think people are so reluctant to discuss that particular connection? I think that fat activism has had to do a lot of work to make clear that you don't have to explain your fatness and that your fatness is not any better or worse depending on how you came to it. And so when you say that I experienced trauma and turned to food and weight gain as a means of dealing with that trauma, I think a lot of people feel like it undermines the work that many incredible activists have done to get to a place of body neutrality, where I'm fat. It's not good, it's not bad, it just is. At the same time, I do think it's important to look at that connection because so many people, especially women who are fat, there's some really horrific thing in their childhood. Yeah. And so why not talk about it? I think you can talk about it without placing value judgments on the fatness. And so I just try to remember that and remind people of that, that it doesn't make how you came to fatness any better or worse. It just is what it is. Mm. There's this culture in, in newsrooms and particularly I think in, in websites that are aimed at women that push young writers to mine their lives for content mm -hmm. and particularly mine their trauma for content. Yes. Um, and the reason I thought of it then was I remember a colleague who uh, in the past was asked consistently to write about her childhood trauma and, and her weight mm -hmm. and I don't think that's where she wanted to be. Mm -hmm. If it was where she wanted to play, great. But I don't think that's the content she she wanted. And for so many marginalised women in the media, there is this push of tell your personal story, make it hurt, do it again, mm -hmm. get the clicks and start again next week. I don't know how you shift that power imbalance, but how do you give, and there'll be a lot of writing, young aspiring writers in this room, how do you give young writers the power to know that they can say, stop, I'm not, I'm not doing that? Well, what I tell young writers, both in my classroom and beyond, is that you are far more than the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And if you never write about that, you are no less a writer than anyone else. And I always encourage young writers, don't do it unless you really want to, unless that's something you want to write about. And I also say that to people when it comes to writing about identity. Just because you're black doesn't mean you want to write about race. Like, frankly, that's the last thing most of us want to write about. <laughs> you know, I want to write about Bravo television. Um, I was re-watching an episode of Million Dollar Listing today, and I also watched um, uh, The Great British Sewing Bee, or whatever. Yes. And I just want to write about that all day. Like, that Sewing Bee <laughs> was just very wholesome. 
And I was very pleased to see, like, they were really like, I'm going to sew this stitch. And <laughs> I was on the edge of my seat, like, yes, girl, yes. Um, you know, and so we contain multitudes, and that extends to who we are, what we've experienced, and what we care about. And the best way to be able to write about whatever the hell you want is to have a day job. And so when you give yourself that shitty day job that ends at five and you leave it and then you go home and you do what you want to do with your writing, it frees you up mm. and it, it forces you, it does, I'm sorry, it keeps you from having to force yourself to get into the content churn where you just mine and mine and mine until you have nothing left for yourself. There's a new one called The Great Pottery Barn Throwdown. Mm -hmm. um, and the oh, world yeah. of pottery We've watched is it. amazing. <laughs> it's so good. Listen, if there is like a wholesome reality show where everyone's super helpful to one another, <laughs> and like I also watched The Great Australian Bake Off when we got here, and at home we watched The Great British Baking Show. It's, I know it's a baking show. Um, I love it. Oh my God, just give me like a bunch of bad teeth people just <laughs> talking about how they're baking trifles. Oh, <laughs> I live for it. It's so glorious and I want to go on that show. I do. My friend Monique is here tonight. She went home fourth on the first season <gasps> on croissants. It was devastating. Listen, okay. She's good at croissants. I know we're talking about important stuff, but I have been trying to bake croissants for two years. That shit is hard. It is. It is. My, the, every time I make them, they just come out jankety. Just <laughs> jankety, jankety. But I'm, I haven't given up. Did you go through the sourdough thing in the States like we did? Mm, well, the States did go through a sourdough crisis, but <laughs> <laughs> I did bake a lot, but it wasn't sourdough. I made baguettes. I tried croissants several times. I made lots and lots of cakes. I taught myself how to cake decorate during the pandemic. Like, le like legit. Oh, hell the, yeah. I, I, I just realized what I was doing wheel. with my hand, but I think you know what I meant. I pipe frosting. Piping, that's oh, what I yeah. meant. I could work at the grocery store bakery. I could. Next level. Hidden talents. Mm -hmm. All right, back to writing. Yes. Um, I want to ask about the mechanics of writing mm -hmm. because you're a teacher as well as a practitioner. I am. When you're writing, how do you avoid straying into the space of telling the audience what they need to know and showing them what they need to know? Well, I trust the reader to mm -hmm. do some of that work. And I just try to give them enough context to then finish the work that they need to finish. And in general, readers are incredibly smart and they're going to do that work. And so when you trust the reader, that gives you the space to show all you want. When you tell the reader too much, when you tell them what you want them to think, they start to feel manipulated, and because yes. they are being manipulated. And so I would rather not condescend to my readers in that way. I trust them very much. And uh, I also trust myself, at least on the page, to know what to say and how. And I wish I could quantify it more clearly at times, especially when I'm writing a book of writing advice right now, and <laughs> almost every day I just open the Word file and I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> I just do it. <laughs> and, but, you know, I just try to trust the reader. Yeah. I found a quote that you gave to Harper's Bazaar once upon a time that said, I'm pretty shy and quiet, but writing is a place where I don't have to be shy or quiet, and you said in the same interview that you're able to be more daring in your writing because you just assume no one will read it anyway. Mm -hmm. That has been proven false. Um, no, it hasn't. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed the people that have joined us. Um, oh, hi. <laughs> so what keeps you writing brave now that you know a ton of people will read whatever you write? Oh, I really still tell myself no one's gonna read it. Yeah, you're just I lying. Do. I do. I just like, I'm always like, girl, don't worry. It's a Thursday. No one's going to read it. No one reads on Thursdays. Yeah. That's true. And, and clearly, increasingly, that fiction is impossible. And honestly, I think that's why I, I'm having a really hard time getting my next book out. And I think it's because I can't lie to myself anymore. Mm. 
And, you know, my dad, every now and then, and by every now and then, I mean every time I see him, and we see him a lot, he's like, you know, Roxanne, it's been five years since your last book was out. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> and it's like sitting there on my hard drive, and it's almost done, and it's pretty good, but I'm, I just talk myself out of putting it into the world because I'm so nervous that it, it's not going to be what everyone wants, even though I'm not writing for everyone, and it's not going to be good enough, and here are what the haters are going to say, and here are what the critics are going to say, and so it's challenging. It's so hard. Are you someone who's good at pausing to celebrate the wins, or do you just move on to the next thing? I'm so bad at it. Yeah. I move right on to the next thing, and which is not ideal. I do want to get back to enjoying the wins because the wins are happening and they're pretty great right now and I don't take any time to enjoy them. And with a brain like yours, there's a lot of wins, right? You apparently got into basically every Ivy League college you applied for. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Except for Brown. And every time I go to Brown, I tell them, (laughs) you could have had this. I understand that when you were accepted to Yale, you had a classmate who kind of dismissed it Mm -hmm. as an affirmative action pick. He did. Lacrosse player. Yeah. (laughs) There's been a lot of conversations in this country recently around quotas in different circumstances, whether it's parliamentary, universities, whatever it looks Mm -hmm. like. And I think that there are some people who are beneficiaries of quotas who come up against what you did Mm -hmm. again and again and again, that diminishing sense that undermines the benefit they were designed for in the first place. Yes. How how did you push back against it? You know, it's an ongoing project because almost everything I achieve, I'm told by someone, and generally someone who resents that I have gotten something they did not or could not, um... Oh, affirmative action. And so it really is a very insidious thing because it makes you doubt yourself and it makes you think, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm just black enough. And so I have to just remind myself, no, that's not the case. And I particularly remind myself that, look, I have a great work ethic in general. I work my ass off. And so whatever forces beyond hard work are at play, I earned it. I deserve to be in whatever room I'm in. And I just continually remind myself of this. And it's just frustrating to have to do that because all of the energy I'm spending reminding myself that I deserve to be in the world could be spent like working on my book. (laughs) (sighs) Hi, baby. Yeah, welcome to the small person. I love small people. You're a woman of many talents, but chiefly it's about words, right? Mm -hmm. And the publishing industry in the US and the publishing industry here is very white. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing that change in the States? Because it feels like things are moving faster there than they are here. And how do we do that? Um... They are moving faster there than here, but that's not saying much. (laughs) (laughs) Things are getting better in the U.S. I think it's really important to acknowledge progress as hard as it is because when you look at the work yet to be done, you just think, oh, my God, let's not get too excited. At least now we know the extent of the problem. Mm. We can put numbers to it year after year. And so... That means, okay, we know what we need to do to improve, and we know how to measure improvement. And there are more people of color entering publishing at every level except the top. And that's where the problem is. It's like, yes, we can hire interns and fellows and junior editors, but what about the publishers? What about the senior editors? And, you know, the people, the talented people are there to fill these positions. They really are. But publishing is a very incestuous world where they are very set in their ways. And a lot of the old ways of sort of doing business continue to thrive. Um, 
last week, a young editor put a tweet out, and I, I believe she was white, but it, that's neither here nor there. She was writing about how she's leaving publishing because she has a book that's currently on the bestseller list, and she still can't get promoted to editor. <laughs> As an editor, she edited this book. And, you know, when you can do something great and hit the holy grail of publishing, and you're still not good enough. Now, imagine what the black people dealing in publishing are dealing with. And this, the bar just is even higher, the sort of darker you are, and the further, again, away you are from what people consider the norm. So it's an ongoing project, but you have to sort of hold their feet to the fire. And unfortunately, a lot of it is that people in powerful positions have to mandate that they change. And so like for my upcoming book contract, I mandated that they have to hire a black publicist. And when I started my imprint, I mandated that they have to hire a black person at any, at any field, whatever, to work at the company because they didn't have any black people. Mm. And I love my publisher, Grove Atlantic, I do, but come on, like what's the excuse? Mm. Folks, I'm gonna turn the microphone over to all of you in just a couple of minutes. So what's gonna happen is we're gonna have a microphone over this side and a microphone over this, over this side. So you are gonna be able to choose the far right or the far left up to you. <laughs> um, I may choose evenly between the two. I may choose not. Choose right. Um, <laughs> so uh, you can start to move towards those points while we're having a chat. Uh, please do not leave me with the situation where one of our heroes, I say that collectively as a room, is left without a question. Don't embarrass me, guys. <laughs> um, no, there are questions. I feel it. Yeah, they're, they're bubbling with them, I think. So I'm trying not to make this too parochial because Australians do that very well. But I think this is a common problem. We've had a bit of a conversation this week in the media about a campaign that was launched, a good political campaign. Um, oh, they're all laughing. A good political campaign on behalf of women, asking for good, solid policy changes. And it was criticised for the large number of white women who were fronting the campaign. And it was, there were complexities and people left out of photo shoots and time. There were all these reasons, right? And I think as women of colour, we often feel like we should pipe down mm -hmm. because for the greater good of the cause, yes. we want that campaign to get the airtime it deserves. Mm -hmm. But by speaking up, we rob it of the airtime it deserves and often everyone hates us because we spoke up anyway. Mm -hmm. How do you manage that day to day? Because I imagine for you, you were asked for your opinion on those kinds of moments again and again and again. I am. And so I try to be smart about when I offer my opinion and I try to make sure that my opinion is actually gonna matter, is actually mm -hmm. gonna be meaningful. And I also just try to gauge you know, when it would be better for me to step back, when it would be better for me to listen rather than speak. And in general, I trust my gut on that. But I do think that a lot of times people of color do say, you know what, I'm just gonna not say anything because I want this to happen. I want this to move forward and I don't wanna muddy the water, so to speak. And I think that's actually not the right way to go about it because we see what happens when you sort of step back and kind of like let white people run off with things they tend to be very, like, horse blinders. Mm. Like, they only see, oh, my God, we have to fix things for women. And they assume that all women are the same. And they forget about the other aspects of our identities that inform who we are and how we understand the world. And so, again, I believe there's a word for this. Hmm. <laughs> Intersectionality. <laughs> and so I do think it's important to remember that at all times that we can't let any one group dominate these conversations because it really does take all of us. And until we're all seated at the table, uh, it doesn't really matter. It just doesn't. When you're not seated at the table, I think it can feel deeply lonely. Yes, I think it can because at least for me, I don't want to be at the table at all, but I do recognize that sometimes I can be and I should be. 
But when you're not and you know you should be, and you know what's not being said, you know the issues that are not being raised, the concerns that are not coming up, the, the sort of pushback that's not happening, you see the result of that. And we see crazy things all the time where people clearly thought they were like, ah, we've solved this diversity problem. And then you're like, mm. <laughs> Like, did you guys see that logo? <laughs> Man, <laughs> that was just such bad design. <laughs> it was bad thinking. There was no black person in that room. <laughs> I know that for a fact. So uh, help yourselves. Folks, it's your turn. We've got two people with Wheeler Center t-shirts. Everyone's gone to one side of the room, so we're saying that's the left. Uh, who's <laughs> kicking us off? Hi. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Mame. Um, I just wanted to say really quickly, uh, thank you for, you tweeted last week about my little tiny book event that I had here in Melbourne uh, called Bad Love, and yes. I've got a little copy for you here. Excellent. Uh, a little gift. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, and my other question, which is perhaps quite basic, <laughs> but I wanted to know how you deal with or have dealt in the past with imposter syndrome, especially as your star was rising. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. I deal with it all the time. And it's a struggle. It's a struggle to believe I'm everything people think I am, because most of the time I think I'm the furthest thing from that. But then again, I just try to remind myself, they think that for a reason. And look at the reason. It's not luck. You know, I mean, a little bit luck, but it's not accidental, because like I'm very specific, and I'm a very acquired taste. So if you're into what like I'm serving, I'm a, you like, I must have actually done something. But it's also there are days when I don't, and I surround myself with really great people. Um, my wife is incredible, and she's basically just like a personal pep band. She just follows, not follows me, but she walks <laughs> us, she walks around next to me, like always building me up and just reminding me that I'm great. It's awesome. Highly recommend. And I do, I hope I do the same in reverse uh, for her because she's just incredible. The smartest person I've ever met. And so if she thinks that I'm great and a good writer, like, then maybe I am. And I also have really supportive friends. I have a supportive family. My parents, like, we went to my parents' house in late December. They had just gotten a new apartment. And we were going to help them unpack, but then we got in the door and everything was done. And Debbie showed me, my dad had made these little installations with my books around in two rooms. And I was just like, oh. And so to know that people like that have my back, reminds me that, okay, I'm doing something good. And when I'm not, they're going, when I can't believe that, they're going to sort of hold me up. And so the best thing you can do as your star is rising is to remember that the people you knew before your star began to ascend are generally going to be the ones who are most down for you, no matter how high you go. Thank you. Um, hi, Roxanne. Hello. Um, firstly, so excited that you're here and that I'm here. Um, <laughs> um, I was just wondering, I was kind of going back and forth about whether I should ask a more personal question or another question, but, you know, as um, a black woman who does work um, that speaks a lot to um, the kind of oppressions that you face, both of the intersections of being a woman um, and a person of color, um, do you ever find, I guess, I guess I'll word it this way, I find that I'm put in a position a lot um, in work and also just in like where I get pushed um, for my work in the future to do a lot of like race-related stuff, which is like, it's great and it's like inspiring and it's things that I wanna do, but I find that I, I feel quite resentful um, about it quite a lot. Um, and I'm just wondering, um, you know, the Toni Morrison quote comes to mind about, you know, racism being a distraction from the work. How do you kind of know when it's a distraction or whether that justice work is your work? Mm -hmm. Great question.
it goes back to knowing when I should speak and when I should listen. When I feel like I have something to contribute to something related to social justice, related to race, then I know, okay, yes, this is where I should lend my voice. But I know it's a distraction when someone wants me to speak to something that I know fuck all about. And <clears throat> they just want me to speak because I'm the only black person in their Rolodex. And that happens so much. It happens so much. Like, what's your take on Afghanistan? <laughs> I do not have one. I care, but I'm reading the experts. And so never let people force you into being a universal expert because then you're really not doing anything because you don't have any specialization. And I also try to do as much work as I can that I just want to do like with my little pet interests. My secret, secret project is a cookbook. I know. And it's the only project I have that I haven't sold yet. And so it's called IDGAF. <laughs> I laugh at my own jokes, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> but it's called a cookbook for the rest of us. And it's a cookbook I want to write because I make all these recipes and I cook and I love doing it, but I'm not going to like sift the flour. <laughs> like eight times out of 10, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and I'm not going to pre-mix the dry ingredients. I'm just going to put that shit into the mixer. <laughs> and I assure you that what comes out is going to be delicious. And so I, when I work on it, it's so joyful. It's so fun. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to save the world with this, but I might save myself. And so make sure that you're doing things that are your passions. And when you feel called to speak up, call, you know, speak up. Uh, and don't ever let anyone put you in the corner. I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Hey. <laughs> um, I was wondering, when you're handling a publication such as Not That Bad, <clears throat> how do you go about, or how did you go about measuring your responsibility to people who hadn't had the experience um, when we're sharing experiences of trauma, especially where assaults and things are concerned. Mm -hmm. And especially as a black person, <laughs> I feel there's often this response of, oh, well, what are you trying to say to your audience? And how are you gonna hold your audience? How are you gonna care for your audience? Um, and at all of the intersections that a person can be at ex and experiencing violence in that way, when it comes time to write about it and share one story and the story of other people in community, mm -hmm. how do you go about measuring this concept of responsibility? Because a lot of times, it just feels like a gaslight. Yeah. I try to ignore sort of this external pressures to make collections like that be a specific thing. So when I was editing Not That Bad, I had gotten about 330 submissions, and I solicited about half of the, I think 11 of the 29 submissions I included in the book, because I knew that there were specific people I wanted to hear from. Gabrielle Union had written this incredible op-ed for the LA Times about her own experience with rape, and I just thought, this is gonna be great to include. Um, there was a writer named Aubrey Hirsch who wrote about the sort of insidious smaller things but are not actually smaller that happen in a day-to-day -day for women. And so what the responsibility I felt was to make sure that I covered as much of the territory of what it means to be alive in a world where the phrase rape culture exists as possible. So many different points of view. So queer points of view and women and men and making sure to include like people along the gender spectrum who maybe are non-binary or trans or figuring it all out because everyone deals with rape culture in one way or another. And so as long as I stayed true to that, I didn't worry about the pressures that other people may have wanted. 
and the checklists that other people may have wanted. I think that when you read smartly and you are interested in range, you're always going to naturally have a diverse collection. And when I picked the pieces I wanted and I stepped back, I was like, hmm, yeah, that panned out really nicely without having to force it. And so I just try to stay true to whatever I think my creative vision should be and trust that in that truth, in staying true, I am going to be responsible. And I also always, always try to remind myself, I can't be everything to everybody. And that's really, really hard because people tend to expect, especially from black women, that what you're going to do is universal. And I'm like, universality is not my goal. It is not my ministry at all. I am literally trying to write to like one person. And if other people enjoy it as well, that's great. And so really resisting that push toward universality helps. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>、oh, I'm a little nervous, so I'm just going to read off my notes.、Mm -hmm. um, but I'm 15, and even though I know I'm young, And I haven't had tertiary education on like politics or identity or gender or anything like that. But I would still like to say I'm politically educated and I have life experiences that could still help other people. But I often find that when I speak in situations, I'm not taken as seriously because of my age. So I just wanted to ask how do I get people to take me seriously or like should someone of my age even be taken seriously in such like. Worldly opinions. <laughs> I love when the badass steps forward. <laughs> yes, you should be taken seriously. Absolutely. But there's no but. But the one thing I've learned is that. You can't make other people do anything. So it is not your job to make other people take you seriously. You can't fix that if they're not going to take you seriously. And frankly, those aren't the people you're trying to reach. You want to reach people who recognize that you have something of value. And so I think really you have to take yourself seriously. And when you take yourself seriously, it's not like the magic, you know, the doors are going to magically open to where you want to be. But The gravity that your work needs is already going to be there, and you will find your audience. It may take longer. You may have to fight a little harder, and you know, especially as a young woman. I think you're a woman. I, from where I'm, yeah.、Um, you never know,、um, but you just have to trust yourself, and then keep at it, and. Push back when people try to deny you, when people say you shouldn't be taken seriously. Because what they're really saying is that they don't have the ability to recognize true, interesting perspectives. And, like, I mean, that's kind of sad. And so just say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hello.、Um, you speak with such grace and humility, and when you talk, you're, you're always saying, on my good day, or you're qualifying your statements. And I feel like the further you away from a cis het white male, the more likely you are to have self awareness as a strength. And this idea of self reflection and identity and So often, I'm I want other people to have that level of self awareness that we, as women and women of colour, have to have because we exist in the non cis het white male.、Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't know how to talk up to that and say you need to have more self awareness and more self reflection. I don't either. <laughs> and it's funny, Debbie and I were talking about this. Either earlier today or yesterday, like I always marvel at the way that people take up space and are rude in public spaces. And 
because I do so much to make myself smaller, to make myself quiet, to not be the angry black woman, to not be this, to not be that. The entitlement I see from others, and I get so furious about it. Like, how come you are not contorting yourself to please others? How dare you? And then I ask myself, why am I not more like them? And then I'm like, wait, why don't we all just be better without compromising ourselves? It's being, it's exhausting being a woman. Just, it's a lot of work all day. But I really do try to remind myself that I deserve to take up space, but that the goal isn't to be like the worst person, men. <laughs> the goal is to be in a world where everybody embodies like the most ideal principles and I'm not talking about utopia like if you want to be a bitch be a bitch but like to have the self-awareness oh I'm being a bitch and so I try to just continue to embody the principles that I would like to put into the world and that I would like to see reflected back to me because maybe people will catch on. And I also try to hold people to that standard. Like, maybe you shouldn't do that. But I don't want to be the, like, hall monitor. I don't want to be a scold. And I, I'm not. But I just, you know, it's hard. It's so infuriating sometimes, the way that people lack self-awareness and will never be held to account for it. They just don't have to. They don't have it because they don't need it. But, yeah, so there's not really a satisfying answer, but I see you. Hi Roxanne, massive fan obviously. <laughs> Thank you. The whole time I was like, don't gush, but I can't help it. Um, <laughs> so I know that you're a TikTok fan. Mm -hmm. um, I am on the feminist side of TikTok, which is great, but a lot of it is stitching with misogynist men who believe themselves wrongly to be high value. Mm. Um, it seems to be coming more and more um, just everywhere. And considering our extremely archaic legal system in Australia and our embarrassing government and their response to women's justice, really, I find it really hard to have hope that anything will get better, because mm -hmm. it feels like things are definitely getting worse. Do you have hope? And if you do, how? <laughs> and how do you hold on to it? I do not have hope, no. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <sighs> things are getting so much worse for women right now. It's really bad. In the United States, they're about to overturn Roe v. Wade, which I, I mean, I'm speechless about it. And you, you know, a lot of times people are like, what can we do to fight this? And there's literally nothing we can do because of the way that the Supreme Court works. And in the face of that, where you realize that the government is set up in a way that does not really allow for democracy to function, how do you have hope? But, that said, I also know that apathy is not the solution. And so I try to like teeter between despair <laughs> and action. Because hope is, um, is too elusive. Hope is like, I hope someone else will deal with this fucked up problem. And it kind of shifts responsibility. And so I try to do what I can, where I can. And for me, the most powerful thing I can do is write and bring attention to issues and try to reach people. Um, and then, of course, throw money at problems, protest, support politicians who maybe can change some of the issues. But, you know, especially looking at what, oh, Morrison. <laughs> I mean, when you look at what's happening in Australia, what's happening in the U.S., it's challenging to even find the energy to do that work. But every time I think, oh, I can't do it or I'm not going to do it, I think, 
Well, it's very easy for me to say some of that as a priv like with someone with a relative amount of privilege or, you know, like I'm clearly not going to need an abortion anytime soon, um, unless it's a love abortion. <laughs> <laughs> but just because like that's no longer a thing I need doesn't mean I should not care about the literal millions upon millions upon millions of people with uteruses who do need access to that kind of care. And so that's what keeps me going, is knowing whether it affects me or not, it affects me. It affects people in my community. And what gives me hope, if that is possible for me, is knowing that there are so many people who are not going to take this bullshit lightly and who are going to continue to fight for people who are facing oppression and who will never give up. And there are those people, they're incredible, and they put their bodies on the line every single day, whether it's through activism on the streets, mutual aid. Um, there are a few lawmakers who are doing some really good work, and I try to focus on that. And then when I'm feeling bad, I just feel bad. Like, you guess, oh, today is not the day. And it's okay to have those days as well because there's a lot to despair about right now. Thank you. <laughs> yes. All right, and final question. Who has trekked from the right to the left? Uh, good evening, Roxanne. Uh, I'm someone who has dealt with uh, body weight issues, food, eating, and all that jazz. And a lot of my family members have also dealt with that. And my question to you is, um, how do you talk about and write about these things without accidentally or intentionally coming off as a concern troll or just outright mean? Um, I just try to be careful. And I try to make sure that I am not... And I mean, sometimes I may not succeed, but I try to make sure that I'm not trying to judge anyone. And sometimes you can't help it. You know, my mother is a fan of judgment. <laughs> and she'll often say, if I didn't judge anyone, then everything would be okay. And I was like, yes. <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> You're so close. Um, but I do try to remember that, that everyone's choices, I mean, we're, you know, when you talk about this, then there's always that person who's like, but what about serial killers? And I'm like, come on, come on. Don't go down that slippery slope. It's not necessary. So I try to avoid that kind of slippery slope thinking. I try to write in a way that trusts people to know what's best for themselves. I try to write in a way that reflects as little judgment as possible, unless judgment is called for. And what I mean by that is, like, yes, if you are a misogynist, if you are a racist, if you are a transphobe, like J.K. Rowling, whatever, I'm going to just be like, that is what you are, and that is bad. But other than that, you're okay. You're doing the best you can. It's fine. And also, I try to ground things specifically in my subject position. So if I'm saying I am dealing with self-loathing, I'm talking about me. And it doesn't mean that if we share the same body, you should feel the same way. I'm just trying to ground it in my own experiences. And that's really the biggest thing I try to do because I can't speak for anyone else. And I don't know what it's like to live in that body, but I know what it's like to live in mine. And I know how I feel. And just because I feel this way does not mean I feel this way about you, and it does not mean I think you should feel the way I feel about me. And that really helps. And then there are things that I can't do, which is control how other people are going to respond. And so I also try to recognize that sometimes people are going to be hell-bent on misinterpreting you and misreading you, and there's nothing I can do about that. And it's very hard to admit that, but... I do recognize that and actively remind myself, like, I can't fix stupid. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for your incredible questions. Roxanne, we have treated to you, we have treated you to a less than excellent time always here in Australia. <laughs> and I hope that the respect and admiration in this room tonight shows you how much 
you are loved in this country. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, you guys are so nice. Now, the reason I um, keep coming back to Australia is I have had some pretty rough experiences in Australia, but I also have a very passionate reader base here, and I'm so grateful for it, and that's what keeps me coming back, and I do feel the love and the appreciation, and I'm grateful to everyone who came out tonight, uh, especially, you know, in a sort of never-ending pandemic. So thank you all for being here. I would like to thank the Wheeler Centre for making tonight possible. Uh, for those of you who are keen to come to some more events over the coming weeks, please check out Broadly Speaking, which are their events around uh, women and non-binary people during the year. And if you want to support their fine work, it's been a pretty tough couple of years, you can also donate at the Wheeler Centre website. Thank you to the Melbourne Convention Centre for housing us and keeping us warm. Thank you to all of you, but most importantly, can we have another round of applause for Roxane Gay? Oh, thank you. was Jamila Ritzvi in conversation with Roxanne Gay on the Wheeler Centre podcast as part of our Broadly Speaking series. This event took place on the 16th of March 2022 at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Find more events and podcasts from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercentre.com.